the bonus episode of Golf.com's Off Course with Claude Harmon podcast. Obviously, I'm Claude Harmon. We had Mel Reed in the first episode. That dropped on Wednesday. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, definitely go take a listen. Mel's one of the best interviews in golf and one of the coolest people in the game of golf. But obviously, with Phil Mickelson having just won another major championship, uh, what a crazy week it was at Kiowa Island. thought we'd talk to and reach out to Dave Phillips. If you're in the golf world, Dave Phillips coaches John Rahm, co-founder of the Titleist Performance Institute, one of the best golf instructors on the planet, one of the best golf fitness people up on everything technology and has been a massive, massive influence and a mentor on my career. If you're not a big golfer and don't know who Dave Phillips is, I think this bonus podcast will give you a little bit more insight. You know, they just do some unbelievable work out at the Titleist Performance Institute and they've kind of changed the way that, you know, golf fitness and kind of the body swing connection. Dave talks a lot about that. Um, so I think you'll get a lot out of this. Uh, he's also one of Phil Mickelson's very close friends, and he kind of does a deep dive into kind of the Phil world, why Phil was able to do what he did. Talks a lot about uh, a passion project of his and Phil's um, coffee, which if you're a coffee person, um, Dave's your man. But um, I think this is a, a really good bonus episode. And uh, you'll get a lot out of listening to this. And I think you'll be able to take some things that can help you with your own game. So sit back and listen to Dave Phillips. This is Off Course with Claude Harmon. All right. Well, I'm really excited to have Dave Phillips uh, join me today. Uh, Certainly somebody that's probably influenced uh, my career and what I've done more than uh, a lot of people Dave, when you started the Titleist Performance Institute in 2003, would you think in 2021, Phil Mickelson would be the living embodiment of the body swing connection? Not exactly. No, that's uh, that was a shocker, I think, for for everybody but his closest uh, friends. I mean, we we actually see how hard he works and how passionate he is about this game. So, you know, I, I always felt I actually played 45 holes with them about three weeks ago. And, and that's what's so amazing. And the reason I tell that story is, you know, I, I don't get to play a lot of golf and I go out there and here's a guy, he's off from playing the tour and Hey, meet me. Let's play. I got a couple guys. We go out and play 18. I think we need another 18. I'm like, really? We're going to play another 18. Sure enough. We play another 18. We finish. We walk off the green. Everybody's shaking hands. He's like, I think an emergency nine is, is in, and, and you know, you're, I'm standing there, I'm going, I don't think I've played 45 holes in a day since I was like 12, you know, or, or 13 growing up. And here's one of the best golfers of all time that can't get enough of it. Yeah. And, and it just goes to show how hard someone like that works. And, and when you see it and we, you know, you see the wild shots and you see the crazy stuff, but you also see the good and the good is really good. And the shots he can hit that no one else can hit. I think the thing that amazes me and continues to amaze me about Phil is his willingness in public on the real stage of playing professional golf to hit bad shots, to try all this stuff. We've played, I mean, DJ and, and some of the guys I work, they played practice rounds. We played, DJ played a practice round with him in, in Saudi Arabia and every hole all he wanted to know was how fast his club head speed was, how fast the ball speed was. If he outdrove DJ by a yard, I mean, it was just like constant, just giving it to him. And we were all jokingly going, Bill, why don't you try hitting some fairways? I mean, it doesn't, ca- it doesn't matter that you've hit it over here. 
And I think that we all kind of chalk this up, and as, as, as you know, you're one of Phil's very good friends. It's Phil being Phil, but is Kiowa Island proof that there is a method to the crazy Phil madness? It has to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, look at two guys that are right up there, right? So look at Phil and look at Padraig Harrington, who Padraig has been a close friend for many years. Um, he's, he's one of those guys that challenges us at TPI constantly with the questions and the crazy drills and the happy Gilmores and the stuff that he does. And, and how many times have we seen him on the range doing stuff that we're like, what are you doing, you know, and, and, and going after this speed. But you look at a course like Kiowa, and what it forces those guys to do, guys that have so many layers of information that have played this game for such a long time at such a high level and have been exposed to every type of condition, when the conditions require one shot, you've got to hit it against that wind. You've got to, those guys excel. And, and, and you know, that's why, you know, when, when it's a regular tour event and the wind's not blowing and the weather's perfect, a lot of times they don't perform because, They've got too many options. The younger guys are just like, I'm just going to hit it right at the flag and boom. These guys are like, well, I could hit a low one, a high one. I could draw it. I could fade it. I could do this. I could take it back behind it and spin it back. And a lot of times they're not committing to a shot. So, of course, like Kiowa forces commitment to a shot. So if there was one course and, you know, everybody talks about Phil and says, well, geez, I would have thought he will win the Masters, you know, and so on. And I'm like, no, he's probably got a better chance winning the British Open or a Lynx-type golf course because it forces him to hit a shot, you know? And I, I think the interesting thing about what Phil did, when Watson had a chance in, in, to win the, the Open Championship against Stuart Sink, he was doing it as kind of the crafty veteran, right? About, you know, not making mistakes, kind of all of that. Phil, although he did that, he beat one of the best players in the game at his own game. He drove it as far as he did. He did a lot of the things. So I think the interesting for me is watching everything that Phil has done to stay relevant. He's not trying to kind of, you know, like you said, get to the right course and use his, you know, years of experience and rely on the great short game. He's actually at 50 trying to play the way he sees Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, who are 20, 25 years removed from him. He's trying to play their game. And so this quest that we've all, I, I think all of us have, have at, at times laughed at it, this bombs and the calves and the glasses and the weird warm-ups and the, the, the workout videos where he's doing the, the kicks and stuff. There has been a real method to the madness that we all kind of thought that he's just it's just Phil. So how did he do it, Dave? I mean, you spent a lot of time with him. He's given, you know, you guys at TPI, you and Greg, a lot of credit and his team a lot of credit. How do you think he's managed to do this? And was this always, in your mind, his kind of plan? No, I, I don't think you're ever privy to his actual plan. I mean, Phil is, is um, you know, he's, he's crazy like a fox, right? So he, <laughs> he he's one of those guys that you look at and you go, I don't know what he's doing but there's something different there or there's something there. And, and, and sometimes you just got to hang on for the ride. And, and, you know, we've heard the crazy stories and, you know, um, his ability to read the, 
the lies around the green and the grass is growing this way and he'll tell somebody and they just shake their head like Phil you're that, that that's you know and they don't believe him but he believes himself and that's the most important thing right is that he actually believes that he can pull it off and that's why when we see the crazy shots and so on and so forth I mean what we've done and, and we've had a very little part of this I mean as a, as a personal friend I'm more of that guy he bounces ideas off. So I've, I've never really wanted to get involved with coaching Phil because I think he's better having a team that he selects himself, which he has. But I've been that sounding board, Greg and I, Greg's been that sounding board to where, you know, we'll go have a cup of coffee and he'll ask a question. And that question is very pointed and it's very, he, he wants the information. Now, a lot of times he can't handle the information. He doesn't, or you don't think he can handle it. But he'll take it in and he'll mix it around in his own way. And that might take a day. It might take six months. Hey, it might take 15 years. But somewhere in there, he's going to figure out how that plays in his world. And that is that's the craziness of, of someone that, that's thinking on in, in uh, that level, you know. So obviously, the title is Performance Institute and everything that you and Greg have done at you know, TPI for the last going on 20 years has been to try and bring this body swing connection, the connection between what the body's doing and what the golfer is trying to do with mechanics through all of that. What do you think Phil has done to have this longevity from a physical standpoint and how has he gone about doing that? Well, so for instance, I mean, his trainer, Sean Cochran, who's been with him a long time, you know, Sean is you know, uh, uh, comes from the baseball background, is TPI level three certified. He's phenomenal at what he does. He's very dedicated and very specific. And Phil works out when he's home a lot more than people realize. I mean, he has a gym at his house and and, and those guys go at it and, and they meet early in the morning. And, you know, there's a number of times that I've been with him and he's like, I got to get home because I got to get up early. I got to do my workout. And I'm looking at him like, really? And you're, you're going to, and he does it and, and he does a lot of core work. He, he's always been very flexible. Um, but as we get older, you lose some flexibility. But one thing he's done is not only has he changed his diet and, and he's making better choices. And, that, and that's hard for someone like Phil in that, you know, whenever you're that elite and you're around the, you know, the, the kinds of people Phil are around, it's always the best bottle of wine and it's always the nicest meal. And it's because they're, they want, you know, if you're going to have dinner with Phil, you're not going to take him, you know, down the road to Shake Shack. You're going to not, nothing against Shake Shack, but you're, and you might, cause that might be where he wants to go, but you're usually <laughs> going to take him somewhere nice. Right. So, so there's a lot of opportunity to have the best of the best. And, uh, you know, I think for a while there, he fell into that trap and, and, you know, we always called him a bit of a yo-yo diet. His nickname I, was Lefty and it was also Hefty. Yeah, I, 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 I've heard that. And, and, you know, so I think those kind of things, he's making choices now that are, he realizes, and I think there was two, two points. One, the, the, the psoriatic arthritis and the fact that that was attacking his body. He realized that that was driven by inflammation and inflammation was coming from food. So to go on this path of how do I get inflammation out of my body? Well, the, the fastest way is to fast, right? Is to actually cleanse your body of all the toxins and get them out and then reintroduce food slowly. And when this originally started, he was in 
Hawaii and he literally didn't eat for like four days. And I mean, imagine going to Hawaii where the food's great and the fish and, and not eating anything. And, and he came back and he, I was like, what the heck have you done? And, and he had lost all this weight. And I was at the time giving him coffee. And, you know, we have this coffee, coffee for wellness. And we have an additive that makes you feel full. And he goes, I just drank the coffee in the morning and I'm good. I'm like, but you need food. I mean, you're a big guy. You need to eat. And he's like, well, I, you know, I've got some other guys. And, and I know Aris Apaya has been a part of it. And he's got some other nutrition guys that have talked to him about this. And and they've really looked at what's the best way for him to function. And I, I think we can all learn from this as we get older, you know, food, it's, it's fine to have food and it's fine to have a, a nice bottle of wine and stuff. It's just when you have it and what that does to you. And he now knows that. And I think that's why he's been able to keep the weight off. Um, he does a little fast every week. He uses coffee as that additive that helps him perform. And, and we have another one coming out um, called recovery that helps him recover after a round or if it's a coffee later in the day or the afternoon. And he loves it. And, and that's helping balance out all of these things in his diet and keeping him in, in the road, so to speak, or inside the rope, so to speak. So Yeah. And I don't think people realize how naturally flexible Phil is. I mean, there have been some great pictures on social media. There was one of him at the top of his backswing from kind of face on in 2012 and where he is in 2021. And the positions are still the same. And you wouldn't think, you know, I mean, even someone like Dustin Johnson, who I work at, DJ's golf swing is getting a little bit shorter than it was five years ago because he's 35 now and his body's changing. And I think the, the thing that has always amazed me about Phil is how he's been you know, throughout his career, his elasticity, his flexibility, his ability to kind of move his body has been something that I think, do you think that the speed kind of training that he's done, he would have been able to do that if the flexibility and the movement patterns weren't already there? Um, no, I, I think, you know, the, the one thing that helped produce speed for him is we taught him how to push with his lead foot, right? And you'll see him almost back out of the shot in many cases. And, you know, that was one thing I was conscious of because Phil has never tried to get open. He's never tried to rotate his hips open or rotate his chest open. And this comes from Dean Reinmuth when he first began. And, and you know, you know, guys have tried to shorten his swing. Your dad shortened his swing for a while and he played good for a long time. And, and his iron swing is quite a bit shorter than his, his driver swing. But, you know, Phil gets speed by length of swing. And, and that's, you can get speed multiple ways. You could get speed by how you push into the ground, but length of swing gives you ramp up speed. So it gives me time to accelerate that club, create the torque and create that whipping kind of action. So in Phil's case, you know, once he learned to push against the ground, then he realized that he needed to have better lower body strength. So you talk about calves, well, he definitely has some calves. And, <laughs> And he'll, he'll, he's happy to talk to him about it. But I think that what him and Sean Cochran have done so well is not only do they focus on the core, but he does a lot of single leg, a lot of stuff on like a BOSU that attacks his balance and coordination. So it's making sure his core is firing while he's doing some of these moves. And that is finally starting to pay off. So, you know, the other thing, as you know, as a coach is, Phil has never been the most accurate driver ever, right? If you look at statistically. So, uh, and, and some of that's driven by, you know, if we look at the body swing connection, his separation of his lower body from his upper body 
is actually a little bit off. So where most players that separate their lower body, you know, we do that test where you keep your shoulders still and separate your lower body, Phil's move, right? So anybody that does that, they tend to get a little steep in transition, which Phil does. He gets the club long and then he gets a little narrow and steep, faces open, and now he has to release that club. Now, that full release forearm rotation speed is another power producer. And if you look at long drive guys, they do that. They often get narrow and then whew, because, but they're not trying to hit it. Like they're trying to hit one ball straight. They're trying right? to hit one. Just one in the grid. So that's not really great for a PGA Tour player, right? And we've seen that with Phil with some of the misses that he can have. But I think now he's in his own mind starting to figure out of all those pieces of the last three years of trying to hit bombs and trying to figure it out. I think his equipment and what he's dialed in with that driver is, is helping him. And I think he now knows that if, if anything, it's only going to go one way. And if it's going to go that way and there's trouble, then let's just go to the two wood because I've played with him hitting that two wood and it's impressive. He can hit it at comes out at 170 ball speed, which is almost tour average. It comes out hot and fairly low and he can hit any shape with it. And if he continues with this, and, and, and knows when to use that and doesn't get baited into the driver when he shouldn't use it, then we all know how good his short game is and how great an iron player he is. And if the putter gets a little bit hot, it doesn't have to be a lot hot, he, he can win and, and win often going into his 50s. I thought it was amazing to look at playing with someone like Brooks, who's obviously one of the power players on the PGA Tour, um, very much one of the alphas on tour, um, and has throughout his career and, and, the, and the major run has dominated majors by hitting driver. And I thought it was really interesting to watch Phil not get, because that's what I thought would happen. I, I got to be honest. I thought Phil would be trying to outdrive Brooks on every hole. And I thought sticking to the game plan on not hitting driver, where maybe in the past two or three years ago, he would have just taken driver everywhere and just tried to carry everything. I thought it was a great combination of all of the stuff that he's added, but then also learning from some of the mistakes he's made. Because, I mean, Phil's one of those, I think the reason why everybody loves him so much, Dave, is he's broken our hearts as, as, as much as, as a fan as he's, you know, made us jump out of our chair. I mean, he has had some catastrophic and some colossal failures. And, I mean, there was an ad campaign about what would, what's Phil going to do next? You, you just don't know. But I thought this week, the way that he kind of plotted his way around the golf course, and I think some of the, the fascinating insights, I mean, you know him, I've been around him, but listening to the way he and Tim talk. Listen, Bones is one of the greatest caddies of all time and, and, and had unbelievable amounts of success with Phil. And, and, I, and I don't know if Phil gets to the heights that he does without Bones because it was a huge presence. But I think the job that, that Tim has done for one, being a very good player, uh, for being a you know former Arizona State head golf coach, the interaction between those two, I thought was really fascinating. I, I do too. And I, you know, I've been around Tim and, uh, and obviously, as you, as you know, I work with John Rahm, who, who he coached as, as his, his coach. And, you know, I've often gone to him and asked him questions about John because John, you know, how, how do you handle that emotion and that, that fire that's within him because he wants it so much. And, and he's always got great things to say. And I, I think that 
it's a it's a huge benefit to Phil to have someone like Tim that that knows the world of Phil, right? And and can can bring him back to reality. And you know as well as I do that when you get somebody, you know, like that, a lot of times it, it's hard for the you know they like to figure it out on their own. So you and I can say whatever we want to say to someone, and sometimes it just doesn't go in. But when it's your brother and they can look you in the eye and basically you have that trust and you know that this person's there for something bigger than a paycheck or bigger than me winning. They're here because they love me. They care about me, you know, and I think that that's a, that that's a huge thing. And um, he, he did do an amazing job. It's, it's impressive to, to watch the banter between them and the, Hey, that's a Pell's this. And you know, it's that, and it's just, it's amazing, right? It's, it's just amazing to listen. And I think you're right. For most people that are never around him, there is a Phil world. You know, my dad worked with him for a number of years and the orbit when you're in the Phil world is is very different and, and it's very unique. I thought one of the great things um, Phil talked about what Tim did, he said on, you know, coming from the sixth green to the, the seventh tee, said, listen, if you want to win this golf tournament, you've got to start making more committed golf swings, not trying to not hit bad shots, not trying to not do these things. If you want to win this thing, you've got to stand up and commit to every shot. And I think that Phil talked about it. That That's a wake-up call, not only if it's coming from your caddy, but again, that connection, that's coming from your brother who loves you and is going to be your brother whether you win or don't win. I thought that was, that was really, really um, powerful. Where do you think this puts Phil in the grand scheme? I mean, to me, I think it's one of the one of the most important wins that we've ever seen a player have given Dave, where we are in, in 2021 with the distance debate. If you look at what Bryson's done, if you look at, you know, guys, the long drivers like Kyle Berkshire and Justin James, who you, I know you and Greg work with, do you believe, you know, there is this, in my opinion, there, it is very naive to think that it is easy to just stand up, take the new ball, take the new driver, and carry the golf ball 350 in the air consistently. I mean, there. Justin Thomas talked about that when Matt Fitzpatrick made some comments. There is an art and a skill to hitting the golf ball a long way. Because in my opinion, Dave, if there wasn't, everybody on the men's tour, on the ladies' tour, on the PJ Tour champions, everybody would hit all of the equipment the exact same. And I think what Phil is doing and what Bryson is doing and what we're seeing players do now is say, listen, we used to think that you, you can learn how, you know, there are things, Brad Faxon teaches putting, you know, uh, uh, Seek teaches chipping and short game. There are people that have, you know, in golf instruction, there are full swing guys, there are mind guys, there are, but I think we're seeing players realize that if you want to hit the golf ball a long way, there is a protocol and a way to go about doing that. And we've never, we've never seen that before. No. I mean, you know, we, we kind of, we've been lucky because, you know, you got to remember when Greg and I kind of started way back, when I first met Greg, he was working with the Cobra Long Drive Tour. So Cobra, who, who you're sponsored by, they were the first ones to really get into long drive with Jason Zubak, five-time yeah. world long drive champion. And we used to have the Cobra team out here and Greg and I would just stand there in awe and we'd have to have them hit zigzag because they would fly it over the fence, you know, which is 350 yards away. 
and and you're standing there and this was back in this was back in like 1997 98 before we'd even built this we used to have to go to the polo fields because the the grounds here weren't big enough right and you're going, my God, look at these guys, they're animals. And we started studying what they did. And we started doing biomechanics on them. And we started testing them physically. And so the world really wasn't ready to be that. They saw those guys as just these bodybuilding kind of animals. And then you had, you know, you, you had the, the guys come out like Jamie Sidlowski that wasn't a bodybuilder, that was actually 170 pounds and, and was bombing it. And then you're going... The whole paradigm changed again. It's just not working out in the gym. How is that guy doing it? And and it, it led us down this path of studying the body swing connection and also looking at, at, at ways to create speed. There's lots of ways to create speed, no matter what your age you are, no matter what your physicality is. I believe that everybody can increase and maintain speed if they're willing to put the work in. And as we get older and you see this drop in speed, some of it's attributed to physicality, to our flexibility, we lose mobility. The biggest thing we lose is strength. And if you stop lifting weights, if you stop strength training, you cannot get that back. You can increase your mobility. You can be tight. I mean, Roger Fredericks, 47 years old, couldn't touch his toes, uh, got in a car accident, and it led him to study yoga and to study um, all kinds of different mythology. And at 55, could do the splits. And at 65, now can still do the splits. And is one of the most flexible individuals I've ever seen, right? And you look at that guy and I asked him, he's like, it was all about learning how to breathe and relax and so on and so forth. It, you can regain your mobility as we get older, but you can't bring your strength back. So you should be, as we get into our 50s, 60s, 70s, you need to be doing some form of strength training. And, and that's very, very important. I'm not saying go to the gym and bodybuild, but I am saying, you know, doing basic carries, picking something up that's heavy and walking around the backyard. Basic stuff is, is essential keeping that muscle mass if you want to create speed long-term. Do you think that we've seen, are we just at the, at the beginning of the speed era and the power era? Because obviously in 2021, we can measure everything, right? Whereas in 1998, 97, back then, you couldn't really do the measurements that we're able to do now. I mean, you could maybe go to a lab and stuff, but now, I mean, Biomechanic systems are affordable. Launch monitors are, be, you know, people are using launch. So the technology and the data and the information, do you think we're at the beginning or do you think there's a ceiling that we're reaching? I think there's a ceiling physically. There's a ceiling with equipment. But the one ceiling that we're really studying now, and actually we're building a whole protocol around it, is the science of the brain and studying neuroplasticity and how to change the wiring of your brain. And, and I think that's really the next big potential increase. Now, is it a 2% increase, a 5% increase? We know that if I can make your brain realize that you can go faster, it's no different than you've seen these situations where a car rolls over and someone's trapped and a guy lifts the car up and you're like, what the heck? How could you lift the car up? You know, well, there are certain things that happen 
that you can do things that are that are indescribable. And, and I think we're now technologies at the state where we can measure the brain, where we can start implementing programming to, to get the most out of it. So, so for instance, you know, we, we do a protocol here for speed. Player comes in 167 speed. This is a tour player and says, I need more speed. And we go, okay, um, have you ever tried swinging faster? And they look at you like a deer in the headlights and go, what do you mean? I'm like, swing it faster and, the, and they stand there and you I go let me show you and so you, you you get up there and they start to swing 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 and all of a sudden in 20 minutes they're at 176 177 didn't change their technique just told them to move the club faster right now they'll tell you that well that's not my natural rhythm I can't play like that but if you train like that and then you keep training like that. When you go to the first tee, incrementally, that 167 is going to become 168, 169, 170, 171. You're, you're changing this. You're changing the wiring to go, hold, hold on a second. I can actually go faster than I'm going. So why shouldn't I? Well, I think Bryson, I mean, Bryson talks a lot about that. And we've all seen these videos in majors where he's got the launch. We saw it at Augusta to where he's just standing on the range. And if you notice... He's making these swings and they look like long drive swings. He doesn't even look where the ball's going because in his, he's just looking at what the speed number is. He's, and again, like you said, the long drive, Kyle Berkshire was here a couple of years ago at Floridian playing with some members and he was hitting balls and I got to watch him and talk to him and stuff like that, you know, world long drive champion. And he was telling me everything that he was doing. And he said, listen, I'm going to make my normal swing, which looks pretty good. I mean, he, he was a college golfer and he's trying to play now. And then his long drive swing and he, two different drivers. So he's got his competition driver and, and a regular driver that he plays with. And he talked, and I videoed, he talked me through everything that he's trying to do for long drive. And he said, and you've got to remember, I can only really hit one good one. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, the math just doesn't add up for me to hit three, four, five in a row. At the speed and, and the violence and the movement that I'm making, I'm looking for lightning in a bottle one time. And I have to make a swing and a movement pattern that is really just kind of reckless abandon. And you see Bryson doing that a lot in his warmups to where, and we, again, when he started doing this, it was the Phil thing. We were all laughing at him. We were like, well, there's no way this can. He, he demoed this last year, Dave, at Colonial. So he used the lockdown, the two and a half months of the lockdown last year and came out at Colonial. And we, he showed up and we were like, did Bryson eat Bryson? Because he looked bigger and he's, he's double fisting protein shakes and stuff. And then he started hitting balls on the range. And the entire range, once he got to drivers, stopped because we're, we're all sitting there, Dave, going, well, how the hell is he going to find the golf course with that? And three, four months later, he wins the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. Yeah. But I mean, this, this is what's so amazing. Like, I mean, we had Justin James out here. In fact, he won this week in Vegas, uh, a long drive event, and he was out here last week. And, you know, he's warming up and his warm ups just with his stock driver, pretty normal looking golf swing are 210 miles an hour. Right. And then he eventually gets himself up, up to his warm-up numbers. And, you know, the ball's carrying 402, and he's at 222, right? And you're going, okay, everybody's like, Bryson's, you know, can get it to 200, and he's at 194, or uh, it's about the fastest I've seen him on tour. But, you know, 
these guys are faster by, by 10, 20 miles an hour than him, yeah. right? So again, like you look at the Kyle Berkshires and, and you know, he's posted his videos of him playing golf and it's, it's pretty impressive, right? Yeah, I mean, it looks now, pretty good. So, so where does that come down to? Could one of those guys, do they have that, that work ethic and that skill and the creativity with all the other things to come down? Or is it easier for Bryson, who's already got those skills, to go up? Well, it's, it's easier for Bryson, right? Because he he could he could get to that, you know, cruising probably 195. But but I look at it and I'm going, but then you get someone like a Justin Thomas who optimizes his launch and spin perfectly at 177, yep. 178. And a lot of times he goes further than those guys, yeah. right? So that you know, they they're all impressed with what Bryson does. But I mean, how many times have we seen you walk out there? I mean, they showed some drives this week and the guys are talking about him. And I'm like, well, who's that ball right next to him? You know, he's playing with so-and-so and the guy's like four yards behind him, right? For the people that say distance is bad, where do you fall on this, you know, debate right now? Because there's this, the golf courses are becoming obsolete. The equipment's too easy to play. It's too boring to watch. You know, every hole is driver wedge and stuff. So, I mean, obviously your job is performance, right? So to me, and, and I'm in the same world that you're in, for me, when people ask me that, I always say, well, that's, that's a philosophical debate, which I'm happy to talk about. But from a performance standpoint, I don't care. I just want the fastest, strongest athletes. If I'm a big Formula One guy, I want, I want to be on Mercedes team then I want to be on the team that's finishing last every week. I want the fastest car, right? So is do you see anything wrong with what's happening with how far people are able to hit it? Um, where do you fall on that? No, I mean, I, I, you said the key worth athlete. If someone's willing to put the time and effort in, like a Phil Mickelson at 50, to his body, to his mind, and and – and, you know, the equipment, there's already limitations on the side of the head. There's only limitations on the rebound and the length of the shaft. As far as I'm concerned, they've set those things out there. It's now up, up to the person. If they want to put the time and effort into making sure their body can perform and do the things, then have at it. If you want to stop them, look at these golf courses. Agronomy is the big thing. We're so used to having golf courses that look pretty. And, you know, all you got to do is grade the rough. If you, if you take the rough from 100 yards in and it's five inches and 100 to 125, it's four inches and 125 to 150, it's three inches. The, the bombers take the risk if you want, but if you hit it in the rough, you're going to be penalized. And, you know, that, that could be one way of doing it. I mean, if to me, everybody's like, well, what would you do to, to limit it? If you want to stop them bombing it, you know, all you got to do is take the T and say maximum T height is two inches. Yeah, because then you can't. You can't launch it. You can't launch it. And at that speed, they're going to spin the hell out of it, and they won't do it anymore. So you know, that's the you're the first. I've never heard anybody in the distance debate talk about T height. So it's that it's that simple. Just change the T, right? Back to the old school, because back when everybody used wooden heads, everybody teed it down like this. Exactly, because the CG was right against the face, right, and that was the way you had to control it. But like, th this is the thing. I mean, these guys are coming out here with pegs that are this big so they can launch it at 17 and, and so on. So if, if you're really that concerned about it, you can limit the T height and, and right away you'll see a difference. If you could design a golfer in 2021, if someone's going to come to you and say, listen, you could design a golfer 
physically to compete at an elite level? What are the physical attributes that you would throw into the design of a goal? What do you need physically to become an elite golfer? Well, that's, that's a great question. I mean, you know, when you, you think of other guys and you look at somebody that just looks like they're built for golf, you got to look at Dustin, right? I mean, yeah. Dustin Johnson, to me, the length of his arms, you know, his physicality, his shoulders and the flexibility. Yeah. I mean, I look at that and go, there's an athlete that, that he's an athlete. I look at Brooks, he's, he's an athlete and he's built, you know, those guys weren't that way when they came out of college, look what they've done to get where they have. They've worked hard. To and change. they're both very different body styles to where DJ six, four, you know, more kind of lean and lanky where Brooks is, you know, very, very strong, very, very kind of stocky and they're built very different. Yeah, but, but what I would say is this, is that we also have the Will Zalatoris of the world. So it's 180 ball speed and the Justin Thomases and the Rory McIlroys that, you know, there's a debate that he could be one of the best drivers I've ever seen, which I think if he continues hitting a high draw, that's that's what he should do because his swing's built for it. But, you know, Rory pushes against the ground. He's smaller in stature, but he uses the ground beautifully and creates a tremendous amount of speed. So there's ways to create speed. You can create speed with big guys, body mass, flexibility, strength. You can create speed by understanding how to use the ground effectively with the VARC, height of hands. So I look at it and I go, everybody, regardless of who you are, you know, given the right technology that's out there, the, the, the type of instructors that are out there, the teams that you can put around someone, if, if you do that effectively, I don't care who you are, you should be able to compete. So for everyone that's listening, if you're, you know, if you're 35 to 50 and you're a recreational golfer and you don't have a trainer, a physio, you know, you don't have a, you know, DJ's got Joey D, he's got Marnus, he's got a chef, he's got me, he's got all. So if you're just a regular golfer who just plays on the weekend and you want to hit the golf ball further, give us three to five things that you can you as a as a player can do that doesn't involve hiring you know an army of people around you give us give us your top 3 to 5 so i mean the first thing which is in our tpi world obviously it's getting assessed like knowing what you can and cannot do um, that that's number one to me. I mean, it's how we built TPI. You go on the My TPI website, you punch in your zip code, you can find somebody. And for a hundred bucks or you know 150 bucks, there's someone out there that we've trained that can take you through a physical assessment and give you a plan. Uh, here's what you're capable of doing. So don't try and swing like this guy because you can't physically do that. Try and swing like this guy. And I'm not even saying we have to change what you do. Just know what you do. And that way, stay within your lane. Don't be trying to be somebody you're not. The other thing I would say is don't look at tour players to try and don't look at them, right? Like you yeah. said, DJ's got a team. Phil's got a team. John Rahm's got a team. Everybody has this team. They are like Formula One. If you look at Formula One, that car doesn't make its way around the track without that pit crew uh, making sure that those tires are coming off at the right time and going on. We watch it. I'm a big F1 fan. I've been to them. I've studied it. That's what's around the elite level golfers today. So if you're that golfer at home and you're like, I want to hit it further, I'd be looking at different types of swings. And I'd be looking at long drive swings. What do they do to create power? They get their arms up. 
They lift their heel. They maximize their turn. They don't look like a tour player, but they sure hit it far. And for you that's struggling with speed or trying to get a few extra yards, you should be looking at that. The next thing would be equipment. If you're not using equipment to its max, finding the right shafts, the right launch, the right spin, going to somebody and getting on a launch monitor that says, hey, you're hitting down on it, the ball's doing this, let's get you hitting up on it and get the ball doing this. You could get 20, 30 yards just by changing your driver setup. It's amazing. I think another huge benefit and a huge part of Phil's success over the course of his career is his longtime friendship with Keith Sabarro, who works for TaylorMade, who does all of the fittings at TaylorMade. Although Phil is with Callaway, they played college golf together. They're they're very close friends. Keith's one of the best club guys on the planet. And he talks, you know, because DJ's with TaylorMade, you know, I, I see Keith a lot. He talks about Phil and he's like, I'm always trying to get him to use this shaft, this head, this, that. And he won't do it. And I keep telling him, if you'll do this with your equipment, it's going to make this part so much easier. And I think you're right. Optimizing, to me, that is probably one of the easiest things that if you want to spend money, go find, take, if you're going to get golf lessons, club fitting stuff, I think golf lessons, obviously important. I think finding someone that can screen you massively important but going to somebody that can take what you have as the car and say listen we can put these tires on your car we can put this engine in your car we could take this weight out of your car to make the car go faster and i don't think the average golfer looks at equipment the way that we look at equipment i mean we're always trying we're trying to find two miles per hour we're trying to find one more fairway one more green in regulation. We're not trying to find 50. We're trying to get you to, you know, if a player, the math adds up to where if you drive it a little bit better, if you hit a little bit more fairways and greens, the gains are huge. And I think equipment is a massive part of that. It is massive. And, you know, one of the dangers there is a lot of people get on today's launch monitors and, you know, the radars that show us our speed and they get fixated with a speed number. And and we know that centeredness of strike has a much bigger effect on how far that golf ball is than that speed number does. So that's why equipment becomes so important is if I can dial you in and get you to hit the center of the face more often, you're going to maximize that speed that you have. So rather than hitting an inch out on the toe where you could be losing 10 or 15%, you know, so the, the speed number might show higher, but the ball's not going further. So again, always optimizing the center of the face and, and get a good club fitter. I mean, that, that's an easy one. And those are things that can increase your speed right away. I remember being at TPI, this has got to be 10 years ago, and something that's always kind of stuck with me and something I use and say to people all the time. One of the guys, just a regular amateur, was getting fit for a driver, and I was watching the driver fitting. And again, he was on a launch monitor, and he, his club head speed was whatever it was. Let's say it was 145, you know, you know ball, club head speed, ball speed, whatever the number was. The first time the guy saw the number with the driver, he said to the club fitter, how do I get more club head speed? And the club fitter said, you don't need more club head speed. You need to reach that speed every single time. 
start from there. So let's say you've got 155 ball speed and you're in the high 90s, low 100s in club head speed. If the average 15, 20 handicapper could just do that all the time, they would be much better. A lot of times, I think, you know, from a club fitting standpoint, I'll work with a player and we'll have them on a launch monitor. We'll be looking at their club head speed and their ball speed and we'll make a change to what they're doing mechanically. The club head speed on the good shots will actually go down, but the ball speed jumps by 10, 15 miles because they catch it in the center of the face. And and I always, it's that kind of light bulb moment. I'm like, you know that the ball you just hit went the furthest, flew the best, and it's three miles per hour club head speed less than on the bad one you made. You just hit the center of the face and the ball and the golf ball and the club performed properly. Right. No, you're, you're exactly right. I, I think it's a huge factor and, and a real easy one. And, and then, you know, things you should be doing every day. I mean, going out in the backyard and, and get yourself one of those little speed radars, you know, you can buy them for three, four hundred bucks today that show you the speed of the club and just swinging a club, you know, being dedicated to go, you know, I'm going to give myself 10 minutes. By the way, you know, I've been using the whoop band and I've done some testing where swinging a, a driver as fast as you can for five minutes, your heart rate variability, it's like having a high intensity workout or a hit workout. So in terms of what it does for you cardiovascularly and fitness wise, it's a great training mechanism. So, you know, add something like that to your normal fitness routine. Super speed. I mean, the super speed swing stuff, it works. I mean, super speed, there's, there's clubs you can buy. They don't have heads on them. They're different weights. There's heavy, medium. There's four of them. That protocol for creating more distance, more power. Are you a believer in that? Cause I am. I definitely am. I, I think super speed does a great job. And, you know, I, I also think that, you know, we, we play a little game where you have the little radar, you get your fastest speed. And then every day you try and break that speed and you have three strikes and you're out. So say your speed's a hundred and on your next swing, you get to 102. Well, if you can't bet 102, 102 or better, that's one strike. And what it does is you're starting to train this to go, how can I go faster? And a lot of times things like super speed are great and things like hitting a ball into a net. Because remember, we're just trying to increase our speed. We're not worried about the ball. Not worried about the consequence. And this is the danger when you go to the driving ranges. You're embarrassed. You don't want to have that crazy swing because you don't want to see people to fly and top it along the ground, right? So hit it into a net. I think that type of training is really good for speed. Coffee for wellness. Um, obviously, everybody knows Phil has drinks coffee because he takes the coffee cup everywhere. Talk to talk to me about because I know you're probably one of the one of the biggest coffee um, aficionados and coffee snobs on the planet. I'm a wine snob. You're a coffee snob. Talk to me how you and Phil came up with this ideas and what you feel like the benefits are. Well, you know, I mean, listen, my background in coffee goes way back to where I grew up. And that was, you know, I was born in England. I was raised in Kenya. And Kenya is one of the biggest coffee growing places in the world. And basically, when I was six years old, my dad gave me a black cup of coffee. (laughs) And he said to me, he was a tough military guy and said to me, listen, he goes, "You, you don't tell your mom, but you drink a cup of black coffee every day and you'll never get sick. And I started drinking coffee at a young age. At six years old. Six years old. Can you imagine? I wonder why I was running around the house like a nut. But basically, um, 
I have an amazing story in that he used to take me out on the weekend to the bush. We had a Land Rover and we would go to this watering hole. And there was a Maasai tribesman that used to come and sell us coffee for a shilling, which is a currency in Kenya. And he would make it in a little metal pot and he would go pick the beans and he would roast them. And it was amazing. And that was my indoctrination into coffee. And then with what I've done my whole life, traveling around the world, coaching and teaching and being part of TPI, I have always gone to these different places, whether it be Japan, whether it be India, anywhere in the world. And I, I go searching for coffee. It's, I always have an extra day where I'm like, okay, where's the best coffee shop? Where's the best this? Where's the best that? And it's given me this broad perspective on coffees from Africa, coffees from South America, coffees from Brazil. And, and that took me on this coffee path. So I started very probably 10 at least 10 years ago, Phil came over and I made him a cup of coffee. And he was like, oh my God, what did you do? This is the greatest cup of coffee I've ever had. Um, I said, well, here's what I do. And I showed him how to make it. And he started making it and he loves it. And then when he got psoriatic arthritis, I said, you know, there's some things you can put in your coffee that might help reduce inflammation. And we started generating or developing this additive that we call the good stuff. And it has MCT powder in it, which is a medium chain triglyceride. It's a good fat that keeps you full. Um, we put cinnamon in there because cinnamon cuts out acid in coffee. So if you have a over roasted cup of coffee, put a little bit of cinnamon in it, it'll smooth it out. That's the secret of the high end restaurants around the world. The French laundries put a little cinnamon in their coffee. Everybody's like, this is the greatest coffee ever. doesn't matter what the coffee tastes like. You put cinnamon in it, it takes away the acidity. And then if you put a little bit of Himalayan rock salt, which we put in there, we also put some collagen. And uh, we have something called L-theanine, which is an amino acid that reacts with caffeine to stop you feeling jittery. So a lot of people don't drink coffee before they play golf because they feel like, well, I don't want to be shaken over that three foot pot. Well, with the L-theanine, it takes away the caffeine jitters, but still gives you the focus of caffeine. And so I started making this for Phil and he was like, this is unbelievable. I love this. And it, it fell really well into his diet that he was trying to do this intermittent fasting. And to cut a long story short, we were, we were actually at Augusta before the tournament with one of the members and we were having dinner. And basically this gentleman says, tell him about your coffee. And I started talking about coffee and he starts going, that's an amazing idea. He goes, we should make that a business and I'll help you do it. And I'm like, well, who are you? And he happened to be one of the biggest coffee purveyors in, in the country. And so Phil's like, yeah, we should do it. And I'm like, we're going to go into the coffee business. And he's like, yes, we're going to do it. So we started this business about a year ago now. And it's, uh, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And, and that's all it was intended to be. But, you know, it's called Coffee for Wellness. And now I'm involved with searching all kinds of other additives. And we're coming out with these coffee bites, which are amazing. They taste. Hey, you gave me some of those at Augusta. They were really good. They're really good. And that, that that's coming out. Uh, hopefully we'll launch that around the U.S. Open time in a couple of weeks. And, you know, it's it, it's it's a great little product and, and you don't have to buy our coffee, but if you buy our additive, the good stuff, you can put it in any coffee you like and it'll give it a little kick and it'll help you focus. And we've got one for recovery and I've got one coming out for energy and it's, it's just a great thing. And you can put it in cold brews, you can put it on your cereal, you can put it in a smoothie. It's all good for you. So last thing, I don't even care if this story is true, but you might know if it's true um, about Phil. Um, 
he goes up to the Yellowstone Club in, um, in, uh, to do all of his skiing. And um, there's a great story that when he's up there, he gets all the kids together and they play dodgeball in the gym. And the story goes that Phil plays dodgeball with wide receiver gloves on and takes no prisoners and is just firing at kids' heads and wants to make sure he's got wide receiver gloves so he can catch it. Is that story true? Yes, it, it is. <laughs> I hope he doesn't kill me for saying that. I've, I've been part of those dodgeball games. And I'm telling you, you do not want to be on the end of one of Phil's dodgeballs. Everybody, when I was there, I went there a couple of years ago and a friend of mine was the GM there at the time. And he was showing me around and he showed me the gym downstairs. And he goes, and this is where Phil comes down and beats up on all the kids. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, he has, a, has, a, has a, a dodgeball game. He wears wide receiver gloves and he's just firing it at people. And he's just like no prisoners and all of it. So I am glad that story is true. It actually started with his own kids and his daughter <laughs> who, who has got a mean, a mean throw of her own. And it started just with a couple of parents and their kids. And uh, it evolved into bigger and bigger kids kept showing up and joining these games. And then it got really kind of competitive to the point that you didn't want to throw your five-year-old in one of those games or, or they better, better be wary. They're probably going to be knocked down. Well, I just, uh, it's been great talking to you. I mean, uh, inside into the Phil world is, is, is always great, but um, you guys, you and Greg do an amazing job at TPI. And as I said to you earlier, um, I don't think I'd be where I am in my career without, you know, the knowledge that I learned from you guys and, and, the talks that we've been able to have, you know, honestly, you know, having a father like mine, you know, has been an amazing influence. Having Butch Harmon as your dad as a golf instructor, you know, you couldn't ask for anything better. But the relationship that I've been able and lucky enough to 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 have with you and Greg and just all of the people that I've been able to meet in the TPI orbit, because to me, that's one of the most important parts of, of you know, my world is, is the work that you guys do. So thanks for... Uh, talking to us and uh, I'm, I'm waiting for more coffee. Well, you, you'll coming. get some more. I'll, say, I'll send you some of the new stuff and thanks for that. And, and, and to yourself as well. I mean, listen, I, I know how hard you work and how hard you've worked. And I know how hard it is when you've got a dad like you have to be where you are. And I've seen what you do every day and, and what you do with your players. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. You're, you're as big a mentor of mine as I am as of yours. So it goes both ways. So that was Dave Phillips on the bonus episode of Off Course with Claude Harmon. I mean, what more do you want? We got to listen to and talk about Phil. We got to get some tips for your game. Got to talk about, you know, kind of a deep dive into coffee. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think what Phil did and, you know, Dave touched on a lot of it. It was an amazing performance. Um, You know, I'll be honest. I thought it was another major championship for Brooks Kepka. Um, I just didn't really see any way that Phil was going to get it done. And, and given Brooks's performance in the majors when he's had a chance to win tournaments and been close to the lead or had the lead, um, he has been the ultimate closer in the last you know five years. And I think what Phil did and how kind of he went about doing it, um, I think everybody kind of noticed. Um, I certainly noticed that I've never seen Phil take so much time in between shots, um, the way that he was walking. Um, he had kind of like a Zen-like quality and when he was ready to go and, and hit his shot, it would, it would seem like he was standing there, you know, for a long time. He had the aviators on, you know, he just looked like a, like a beast out there. And, and, and the way that he kind of won that golf tournament, he won it with 
Obviously, the short game that everybody knows Phil has, the chip in out of the bunker, I mean, that's what he's famous for. He won it with his putter. Um, He won it, believe it or not, um, which I never thought I'd say at this stage of Phil's career is he won it with unbelievable ball striking. And, you know, I didn't think that Phil at, at the age that he's at was would be able to put pressure on Brooks Kepko with all the tools that Brooks has in his toolbox. I, I just didn't see a way that Phil could kind of withstand the the heavyweight punches that 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 Brooks was going to throw at him. And it was kind of Brooks that that blinked first early in that. And I think it's an interesting when you look at your own game, I mean, you know, I think Brooks wins that golf tournament if he doesn't make double bogey early. And and if you look at how double bogeys can derail not only the best player in the world scores, but derail your own scores. I mean, one of the easiest ways to improve your golf, to lower your handicap, to break 100, to break 90, to break 80 for the first time, to break 70 for the first time, is to eliminate those big numbers. And, and I thought it was really important in that final round that we didn't see any real train wrecks from Phil, because that's what I thought we were going to see. I thought Phil was going to be close and then maybe get through the front nine and within touching distance. And then on the back nine that, that Phil was going to throw what Phil has, has done, you know, many times, throw some wild drives, throw some wild shots. Um, he hit a couple of errant and shots down the stretch, but he was able to get out of there with bogey. I think the one thing that you can take away that can help you from your game and watching how Phil Mickelson won that PGA is on the back nine, bogeys are okay. You can survive making bogeys. Double bogeys, triple bogeys are very, very difficult to come back from. So when you think about managing your own game, it's always, yes, making birdies help, making pars help. But believe it or not, and we see this year in, year out in all the major championships, bogeys are fine. And one of the mantras in in the eight years that I worked with Brooks Kepka is we used to talk in preparing for majors and getting ready for majors and being in the middle of majors, no double bogeys this week. Double bogeys can take you out of the golf tournament. I think that's what Phil did really well. And really, for the first time, I think we saw Brooks do something that was very uncharacteristic. It was great to see Brooks back. I think we're going to continue to see. I mean, he just has this innate ability to show up for major championships. I'd be shocked if he isn't in the mix out in in San Diego uh, in the coming weeks at the U.S. Open. I'd be shocked if he doesn't you know, put himself in the mix at the Open Championship at Royal St. George. He's just that type of player. His game, his mentality. But I think probably, for me, one of the most popular wins, I can still remember Jack Nicklaus winning the 86 Masters at 46, and I didn't really kind of know what that mean. But I think what Phil did rivals that and maybe even kind of one step further because the game is so different now. And for Phil to be doing what he's doing at this stage is amazing. So a great bonus episode with Dave Phillips. Every week we're going to be dropping new episodes of Off Course with Claude Harmon. So check those out wherever you get your podcasts. 